This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And Sam and I have been looking at the early parts of the book of Genesis over the last few episodes. Um, Last week, Sam, we talked about uh, the effects of the fall and what happened Mm -hmm. immediately after the fall. Um, Before we get into Genesis 4, which is where we are today, which is Cain and Abel, um, you said you wanted to kind of do a little bit of a recap and sort of bring us up so that we had a good a launching point into Genesis 4. So why don't you give us a little recap of where we are here in our journey through Genesis? Yeah, so so when we're walking through Genesis, the way that it's laid out is that God is giving kind of his purpose statement. He brings forth the creation at, at the end of uh, chapter 1. He looks at Adam and says, you know, this is what I want for you. I want for you to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, what he's saying is, I want you to take my design, what I've, what I've made the earth for, and I want you to take it to the ends of the earth. And he's allowing man, Adam and Eve, to participate in his work. You know, they're, they're, they're made in the image of God, so part of them is creative. And so the idea is, I want you to take beauty to the ends of the earth. That's how we're wired. We want that. There's something in us that hungers this, this creation. We want to create things to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so that's their mission out of the gates. Um, we, we read in chapter two how God has made us to be in community. We're not to be alone, but relationships are most precious when they come from a wounding, right? So Adam is wounded to bring forth Eve. It's sacrificial love. And so you see that before the fall. Then last week when we talked about the fall, you have God who had this created order, right? He has made Adam and Eve to carry out his design in the world. And initially, the world was going to be really easy, like the ground was going to cooperate with us. They were going to be able to take this garden theme and all the designs of God, and the world would kind of yield to what Adam and Eve wanted of it. In other words, it would grow. There wouldn't be resistance and right. thorns and mm-hmm. thistles and all the, curse, the, the effects of the fall. Um, but then the fall happens, and everything, the instinctive desires of Adam and Eve are both very frustrated. And so what this looks like is Eve desires relationship. You know, women tend to be more geared toward that, but the husband is going to to exploit. She's going to want him. He's going to rule over her. Children are going to bring a lot of sorrow and pain. And, and likewise, for the man who is, I want to create and I want to climb this mountain and I want to build this business and I want to take all this kind of stuff and earn respect by what he does, now the earth – is going to rebel against him is the consequence of the fall. Now the ground is cursed because of you, God says, and it's mm-hmm. going to grow thorns and thistles, and you're going to have to sweat. You're going to have to labor like crazy just to try to get the creation to work with you, and at the end of everything, you're going to die anyway and return to the <laughs> dust, right? So Ripped right from the pages of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, but God gives this promise, right? He He's looking. He lays down these curses that we still, or these consequences that we still face today, 
But he says, at some point in the future, I'm going to overcome all of this. I am going to send what he calls the seed of the woman, right? So you're imagining the the woman is going to give birth to this Savior, and this Savior is going to put an end to the tyranny of sin and death. He's going to crush the serpent's head, the one who brought death, the one who brought sin, the one who brought all these things. He's going to conquer, crush the head, kill it, but he's going to be wounded in the process. He's going to suffer a mortal wound. And so from Genesis 3, we're given the promise of the gospel. A Savior's going to come, born of a woman, and he is going to put an end to sin and death. He's going to crush that of the serpent, and he's going to die. He's going to be bitten in the heel in that process. Mm-hmm. And so when we start chapter 4, Adam and Eve are, are beginning to experience the effects of the fall, most of which, and the, the most debilitating, They're alienated from God. Their relationship is severed. They're outside of the garden now, right? This paradise, they've been put outside the garden. They're outside of a a free relationship with God. They don't feel this. They're no longer naked and unashamed. Now they feel shame. They feel judgment. They're walking around feeling inadequate. They're judging themselves. They're judging one another. They feel condemned under God. They know they don't measure up. And so Genesis 4 starts the whole story of redemption that comes following the fall. Mm. And we see what life is going to be like uh, for Adam and Eve and their family, which, by the way, we're all part of this family. Right. Um, starting in chapter 4. Okay. Well, before we jump into that, I, I want to revisit something that you said because this has been something that's come up in conversations that I've had with people recently. Uh, on the subject of relationships, you said that a relationship is best when it comes from uh, out of this wounding or sacrificial love, that that's mm-hmm. the best relationship. And um, there was somebody that was talking about with me about, oh, I just want somebody that's going to you know, accept me or love me for who I am. How many times have you heard that? I mean, I, all, all the time. All the time. People want somebody that loves them for who they are. And I'm like, do you not realize that you've just described sacrificial love? Because when I say I want somebody to love me for who I am, what I'm saying is I want somebody who's going to love me regardless of what I do for them. This is all about me. People that say, oh, I don't want sacrificial love. Oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> you absolutely do. You absolutely do. You want somebody that's going to make a sacrifice in in how they love you. So yeah. uh, There's this great line, uh, you know, Jesus loves us enough to take us as we are, and he loves us too much to leave us as we are. Amen. That's true. <laughs> that's very true. It's good. Yeah, it's a very that's very good. So let's get into Genesis chapter four. Uh, verse one starts with now Adam knew Eve his wife, and I and you know for for the sake of of <clears throat> clarity here, we should say that that means that they had sexual relations mm-hmm. intimately. No, so it's not like Adam recognized yo that's Eve, uh, and we know that because it says and Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived. That uh, word and, there for it, no. And, yes. and, and Hebrew is yada, and I've always wondered if the yada, yada, yada came from that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, is that supposed to be profane? Like, what's going on there? <laughs> That's very funny. Uh, she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Um, I was kind of curious. There, I mean, obviously, we're gonna, we were about to get into their sacrifices and how the Lord received one and not the other, and, and that created this conflict between them. But um, 
let me just start with uh, when she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Do you think she's considering that this idea is this is the seed? This is the one that God was talking about? Did she? I kind of wonder whether she thought maybe this is the guy. Maybe this one is the one that's going to fix everything that Adam and I did. Yeah, you you have to know that that hope is there. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we talked about this last week, how the hope of salvation lies behind childbirth. Right. And yet the curse or the consequence of the fall that's laid upon her is increased pain in childbirth. And so it's like, will you endure the sacrifice for the hope, for mm-hmm. the sake of hope? And so she does it. And when she says, I've gotten a man in Hebrew, it's just kind of a, a little nerdy nugget. That word gotten is kani. It's weird. So Cain comes from that idea of I've got it. It's like I've got it, you know, kani. And then Cain's name comes from that. And so I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And so she's recognizing this is purely by God's goodness. This is God's gift, which hang on to that because we're going to see Cain doesn't turn out so well. <laughs> That's um, true. But it's like. God has blessed me, and now I have possession of a man. Um, so it's pretty clear that she understood that it was going to be her, you know, her descendants, her seed that was going to that was going to somehow fix all of this. She just didn't really get this whole fact that it was going to be the seed of of the woman only. You know that that like she wasn't playing. She didn't have the long view here, but was looking for everything to be over quickly. That that's such a human thing. I mean, um, we talk about that in terms of the New Testament when Jesus said, "I'm going to go, but I'm going to come again." Uh, the people that he that he said that to his disciples and the apostles believed that that meant shortly, like next week he'll be back. Mm. He's just going to yeah. be gone for a short period of time. It's just interesting to me the parallel there, which is God says to them, "Okay, this is what's happened, and this is how eventually this is the promise I'm giving you is that eventually your offspring will will make this right." Um, but they're thinking, okay, that's going to be like the next offspring we have. The first one we got, the first one out of the chute, that's the one that's going to make things right. In the same way that you had people living in the New Testament times who were complaining to the Apostle Paul saying, we got left behind. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, which was a big deal. We missed it. The Thessalonians were, mm-hmm. were like really upset about all of that. Um, and it's such a human thing to feel like God is going to fix this. Right away, you know, it was yeah. like we have no patience with God's plans. Yeah, um, uh, we we had personal worship this morning with our pastoral staff, and and part of that discussion was, you know, what if what if God doesn't move? What if God doesn't bring revival in our lifetime? What if we don't get to see it, but we're faithfully ministering for our great grandchildren who right. may see it? I mean, how many times have we heard about that, uh, you know, in historical figures, Christian figures who have, who have literally labored in obscurity mm-hmm. in their lifetime, who now today we hold them up and say, because of what they did, this whole part of the world has been changed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they talk about, we, what we've talked about on the podcast of Thomas. Remember, Thomas went to the East, this mm-hmm. doubting Thomas, he goes to the East and, that there are, uh, you know, there's branches of Christian faith in parts of the world today that yeah. that tie themselves back directly to and Thomas, this man of great doubt who turned out to be a man of great faith in the end. In India, the Martoma Church. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's very fascinating. You know, a guy who, okay, what do we know? I mean, what do we know about Peter? Well, a lot of stuff. Acts is about Peter and Paul. We know a lot about Paul. And we know things about John. And we know things about, you know, 
But what do we know about Thomas? Well, Thomas was the guy who was, he had, he had doubts. He was doubting Thomas. Mm-hmm. And yet you go to where he went and served the rest of his ministries, essentially in what we would say is obscurity. Cause he wasn't, you know, there's not a lot of the new Testament that's written about him. He just kind of disappears. But today we look back at that and we go, wow, because of his faithfulness, there is, like you say, this whole this whole branch of the church that's in India, uh, because of what he did. Mm-hmm. The other thing I was that I noticed right away here is that it makes a point of telling us about the different occupations. Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. I have heard it said, and I and I don't and I don't agree with this, but I'm going to see maybe how you feel. But I've heard it said that it was kind of establishing one of them in terms of. Like what Abel did was better than what Cain did, and that's why the offering was rejected. It really didn't have anything to do with that, did it? It's no. like this isn't like somebody saying no. that a herdsman is better than a farmer or something like that. No, not absolutely not at all. Yeah. And the New Testament makes that abundantly clear, and, and we'll get to that. But just to kind of let the cat out of the bag of what this story is all about, you know. We've just come out of the fall. God has given the hope of a savior. And this very first story, the story of Cain and Abel, is entirely about how you avail yourself of the grace of God. Um, so is it works or is it faith? Yeah. Is is it about how good you are or is it about how good God is? Um, and so what it wants to do, it's, it's actually kind of right out of the gates. This is going to be the first religious controversy, right? Um and and it's going – it has theological consequences. It's very, very important um, what comes out of the gate. So Abel is a keeper of the sheep, you know, so he's a shepherd. Right. Um, in the ancient world, at the time Moses is going to be writing Genesis and relaying this, you know, by the Spirit to his people, shepherds were not seen as these wonderful guys. So this is not saying – you know, oh, well, he's noble. He's a shepherd. You know, no, shepherds were not seen as noble. They were seen as shifty and, and nomadic and crooked. And so so not at all, you know, mm-hmm. the the perspective that they would have had in that ancient world. And in Jesus's day, you know, when Jesus is born and the angels come to the shepherds, sure. that was scandalous. Like even down to Jesus's day, shepherds were seen as kind of the outcasts of society. They weren't allowed... Uh, to testify in court. Um, so the fact that Abel is a keeper of sheep is definitely not trying to elevate him. That's okay. not what's behind this at all. Okay, so why don't we read uh, in verse 3, uh, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat and of their fat portions, um, which just I, I, I identify with that somehow. Um, <laughs> and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now, I have questions. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it, because it really sounds like we um, were talking about the faith versus works thing that starts there right at the very beginning. And it really sounds like God is saying to Cain, you didn't do enough or you didn't do well enough. Your your efforts, your works were not what I what need. Is that what God is saying to Cain here? 
So, so right out of the gates, this hits our 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 imagination, and uh-huh. we go, "Ooh, I don't like that." Yeah. Because I, I want I want you to pause for a moment because we're coming out of Genesis three. God has just said, "Cursed is the ground because of you." Abel is a keeper of the sheep. Cain's a worker of the ground. And so, I want you to imagine what their what their life is like, right? So, what does it mean to be a keeper of the sheep? It means you're you're keeping your flock. I mean, it's hard work, but you're keeping your flock. They're grazing on the grass. You're leading them down to a brook for them to get drink. You know, it's hard work, but I don't think it's anywhere near as hard of work as what Cain has to do, right? He's a worker of the ground. This is backbreaking. It's dirty. You know, it's right. you're hoeing, you're weeding, you're you're dealing with thorns and thistles. It's bloody. You're developing calluses. It's something that every day you've got to go out there. It's really hard work. So, I mean, if I'm looking at the two of them and I'm saying, okay, which worked harder? And by the way, one of the things we have to disabuse ourselves of is this idea, because we come to the story with, with preconceptions. We think, oh, Cain, the wicked one, and right. Abel is the good one. But both of them are bringing an offering. Both of them are saying, I want the blessing of God, right? right. Both of them are religious in some sense. Um, and so this isn't you know the church versus the dirty pagan. This is both of them are inside the church. Mm-hmm. Both of them are coming in worship. And what this is going to do is show you the difference between the two. So Cain works harder. He, you'd think, oh man, oh he worked harder. He deserves the bigger blessing. You know, God should be really excited about his offering. But what we're told here is, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. But Abel brings the firstborn of the flock and the fat portions. Now, what we're tempted to do is say, okay, well, God, God loves Abel because he gave better stuff. And he 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 rejects Cain because he just brought some fruit from the ground, not the first fruits, not the best fruits, just some fruits. And Abel brought the firstborn of the flock, and he brought the fat portions, which was the best of the meat. You know, I've heard people. Be, I've heard people say that. That yeah, that is not what's going on here. What you find, it, Cain comes with this. You know, I've worked hard. And when he when he gets mad, right? It says that the Lord showed regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was very angry. And so what we're to understand when we when we hear that, why was Cain very angry? I mean, you really can only come from one response. What did Cain expect? Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. I did my part. Now, God, you're obligated to bless me. And in the church, do we not all do that? Like mm-hmm. we treat God like he's the vending machine. We we come and we say, hey, I've done my work. Now you owe me a good life. Now you owe me your regard. Now you owe me all these good blessings. And so you can see Cain is going to worship with what attitude? All about works. Yeah. Right? Hey, I worked hard. Do you look at these look at these hands, look at these calluses, look at the dirt underneath my fingernails. Do you realize how hard I've worked and I've just come to you with an offering and you don't show me regard? Oh, and you can he's angry. Whereas the difference with Abel is he comes with the very best he has. That's God's not going, "Oh, wow, the firstborn of a flock. I've never had one of these before. Thank you so much, Abel." <laughs> like, "Oh, fat. I'm so excited because I couldn't have just made a universe filled with fat on my own." <laughs> like, God's not excited about the gift. What he's excited about is the heart behind the gift. Mm. It's Abel saying, "You know what? 
you're so much better than I deserve. Everything I have exists for you and from you. And so here I want to give you the very best. I want you to know that you're loved. I want you to see that I cherish you and I adore you and I honor you. And when you get to the New Testament, it'll tell you that in Hebrews 11. You know, it says, by faith, Abel offered a better offering than Cain. What does that mean? It means that it's not about how hard they worked because Cain won that. It's not about, you know, the quality of the offering. You know, God doesn't go, hmm, this one's worth more. I, I like Abel's. Like, it's that it's Abel coming to the Lord saying, I don't deserve, I don't deserve yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to give you the best of what I have. Yeah. You know, and that is, it's so pervasive. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we think that, um, we think, oh, no, 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 we, we, we're not that way. You know, we, meaning we who are in the church, we, we don't feel that way. And yet, I can tell you that even within myself, there have been times when mm-hmm. I have felt like, you know, Lord, I just, I just need this one thing from you. I just want this one, th- you know, I got this thing I'm praying for. And, and in my mind and in my heart, I'm telling you, it's there of mm-hmm. God, I do all these things, man. I just, you know, it's like I, I labor for you in this and I do these things that, and I'm having it and I'm trying to serve you the best I can and I'm trying to do it. And we're bargaining with God all the time in our minds mm-hmm. and in our hearts. And that is so pervasive. I mean, when we feel ourselves doing that, we need to, to mm-hmm. stop. I mean, we need to, to call, haul ourselves up short and say, no, I, I'm not here to bargain with God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, yeah, whatever we get from the hand of God is more than we deserve. And and by the way, like I, I find myself bargaining for things that are good. Yeah. Like you know, like I'm doing ministry. There should be more people signing up for Bible study. There should right. be more people who are coming to the Lord. There should be more. And when I don't see that, what do I do? I I'm, I take the attitude of why bother? Like why bother when yeah. when really <laughs> you know it's the Lord who's in control of that anyway. But I go to him and I'm like, you know, like, why, why do I, why even bother doing any of this? Like, if you're not going to do your part, like, I've put my coin in the machine. Now you give me the result, God, or child raising, you know, I, I did my thing as a parent and now I want this result. And we really do. We come to the Lord all the time. Marriages, so many things. I've done my part, God. Now you owe me. Yeah. And it's coming out of the gate. Like, this is the first worship war, the first theological controversy. We don't see Cain and Abel as a theological controversy, but this, at at the core of what we find in Genesis 4, is also at the heart of the Reformation. You know, this, this this is Luther versus Catholicism. Is it by faith alone, or are you doing something to earn God's favor? And this war is of the two. Do we earn God's favor, or is it something that comes by grace alone, purely by faith? This this is this this war starts in Genesis four, and it's in the church. Yeah, and so when God asks Cain, "If you do well, how do we do well?" In the New Testament, when they're talking to Jesus, um, and they become convinced that Jesus, the crowd becomes convinced that Jesus is like a, a prophet. You know, it's like, okay, he's a great teacher. You know, tell us what we have to do to work the works of God. You know, they're they're asking Jesus. We're ready to do it, man. We're ready to sign up. We we are a people who follow the rules. Just tell us what you want. And Jesus said, "This is the work of God that you believe on the one that He sent." Sometimes we get confused by this language that sounds like. He's saying, if you do well, well, how do you do well? You do well by having faith in God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, there, there's a bit of a, 
there's a bit of a play on words here because Cain comes and the idea is God is is saying to Cain, you know, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Mm-hmm. Right? And so the idea is Cain is falling, you know, in this moment. But what the Lord says here is if you do well, will you not be accepted? And the 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 word behind accepted, you'll see this in a lot of Bibles, they'll have a note there that says this is the lifting up of your face. In other words, Come to me. Like, don't fall to this anger. Don't feel entitled. Don't go down that rabbit trail of self-pity and everything else. Let that go, and will I, is the idea, will I not lift your face? Will I not exalt you? And so, God, it's very tender. What he's saying to Cain in this moment is stop trying to do it on your terms. Don't be angry and think that it's all about you and how you can manipulate and scheme and work your way and and force this thing. If you do well, you will trust me to lift your face. That's and that's that's the key. Like I mean, if you if you're talking about how to walk through disappointment, you know, it's the worst thing you can do is say it's all on me and my worth is is defined by this and I'm going to scheme and I'm going to struggle and I'm going to force this to happen. You'll live in slavery. Like it'll it'll define you. It'll control you. It'll it'll produce bitterness in you. And what the Lord is saying, hey, if if you do well, will I not lift you up? Like, mm-hmm. and the idea is let go of your anger and trust in me. Mm-hmm. Um. And will I not be the one who exalts you and lifts your face? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that is that's the key. Stop, mm-hmm. stop in your strength. And then he says, "This is interesting to me." Also, he says, "And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it." You know that I, that phrase, "sin is crouching at the door," almost sounds like some sort of beast, like it's mm-hmm. coiled up, ready to spring at you. Is yeah. that what is that what that's supposed to call to mind? Us? Absolutely, it's bringing you back to Genesis three. Remember, remember the the original mandate that's given to Adam and Eve. Is you know in the cultural mandate, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. So in this, it's saying, "Hey, I'm noticing in your heart right now, sin has a, it's like, it's like a serpent that's coiled, ready to strike. It's like a beast that's just ready to pounce. But what you've been called to do, and it's it's spiritualizing this. God is saying to Cain, "Remember." Adam and Eve were, were literally called to rule over the beasts of the earth. But you have a beast inside you right now. It's sin. It's self-righteousness. It's just self-absorption. And that beast will devour you. You must rule over it. Um, and, and this is going to be one of the driving metaphors that's going to go for the rest of Scripture. You know, when, when you're humble, you become more like God. That's remember that's the mission of Adam and Eve, right? They want to become more like God and they obey the beast to become more like God and it makes them it destroys them. And so here you've got God saying, "Hey, you've got a beast inside you. This sin, it's it's looking to consume you, but you've got to rule over it." And if you seize power, if you if you say, "I'm going to own this and you do it your own way," And the Bible, everybody who tries that, it's really pretty fascinating. But the people who do that in the Bible take on beastly qualities. It's mm-hmm. very, very clear when you read through the Scripture. People who do that, they become like beasts. But people who are humble and yield to God become more like God. 
It's fascinating. Now, in the last uh, episode when we were talking about, uh, in Genesis 3, we were talking about the uh, Eve saying, God telling Eve, your desire will be uh, towards your husband, and the ESV translated it contrary to, and we said that was a problem. It's the same thing here. Its desire mm-hmm. is contrary to you. Well, that word is the same word, because other translations say its desire is for you. Uh, but you must rule over it. So, I, I mean, we talked about last time how this idea that it's just almost a thing of like being against a wall or mm-hmm. or toward somebody. What's being said here when it says that your desire is for you or towards you, um, and they translate it contrary, but I mean, it is the same word. So are, are we looking at the same sort of picture here? Yeah, so when you're reading through Genesis, mm-hmm. it is so rich and complex, how it uses language that echoes other passages. It's very intentional. Um, and you see this. This will keep going in other places of the Scripture where you find this same language. But the idea is you have this beast that's crouching and it wants, it's pressing into you. It's, it's coming after you. And in this sense, it really is against you. Sin's not your friend. It's looking to devour you. But you must rule over it. See, in human terms, we're not to rule over one another, right? The, the gospel calls us to love God, to, be, to, to press out and to pour ourselves out to God and to pour ourselves out to other people, husbands, wives, all that. But in this, it's saying you must rule over your own heart. So it's wrong for Adam to rule over Eve, right? He, that, that's an exploitative thing that's not supposed to happen. It's another human being. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it's insinuating in Genesis 4, you should rule over your heart. Mm. You should put down the sin that's crouching at the door like a beast. You reign over it. Mm. Mm. Eve is not a beast. Sin is a beast. Mm. Okay. So then uh, in verse 8, it says that Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. I'm sure if we we were a fly on the wall, that probably wasn't a pleasant conversation. Um, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Now, first of all, I mean, it's a couple of things right off the bat here. Um, obviously, the Lord knew what Cain had done. This was a, yeah, like we talked about last time where God came in the garden and said, where are you? And then Adam said, hey, we were hiding from you because how did you know you were naked? Did you eat from the tree? I told you not. It was an opportunity for Adam to come clean and say, and to basically throw himself on God's mercy and say, Lord, I, I did. I, I ate. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a wretch. I need forgiveness. I'm sorry. I, and I feel like that's the same thing here. When, when, God came to Cain and said, where's Abel? And Cain's like, I don't know. And the Lord said, what have you done? That was an invitation for Cain basically to, to, to throw himself on God's mercy. Mm-hmm. And, and he reveals that he doesn't even have the slightest bit of remorse here. You know, when, when God asks a question, it's never because he lacks information. Right. When God asks a question, it's meant to be probing. You know, it's meant to call you to recognize, hold on a minute, like – it's meant to convict. Where is right. your brother Abel? 
I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, the one that's deceptive. He does know, but then two, it's it's rebellious. Like you know, God has given us to love one another. It's very clear out of the gates. And so Cain is not only saying I don't know, so he's lying into God's face, but then he's challenging God's design. Like you know, how dare you? make me responsible for my brother in a sense it's it's a very rebellious tone there's no there is no oh my goodness i can't believe what i've done to my brother it's it's enti- it's cold i mean you get this feeling of cain that there's just no love in him at all yeah. for his brother it's it's kind of chilling actually we as the church can read ourselves into that and see that the implication is that we are our brother's keeper. You know, that's one of the things that's troubled me so much in our country of late because we pick these people groups and I'm supposed to care about this group or not care about that group. Or, and God is telling me I'm my brother's keeper. You know, it's like I'm to care about people. And and when when somebody is, is suffering or in, you know, in trouble, I'm supposed to help them because I'm my brother's mm-hmm. keeper, you know, and I don't need to worry about labels. I don't need to worry about what label is on me. I don't need to worry about what label is on the other person over there. The, the message here, just like the lesson of the Good Samaritan, who's your neighbor? It's the person that's in need that needs you to help them. Um, and I think that there is a message here to us in that when Cain is being so cavalier to the Lord saying, am I my brother's keeper? The implication is that, yes, we are our brother's keeper. Hmm. You know, this this story is picked up and, and when Jesus mentions uh, Cain, the story of Cain and Abel, he does so. He compares the Pharisees to Cain mm-hmm. um, in the chapter Matthew 23. If you, if you ever want to see Jesus throw down, <laughs> Matthew 23 is the chapter, and, and he throws down where, against whom he always throws down. It's, it's the self-righteous who hold themselves above everyone else, and they say, we are entitled to God's favor. Right. We are the ones set apart. We are the righteous ones, and Jesus ain't having that. Like, uh-uh, that's, if you want to see Jesus get get upset with somebody, have them stand up self-righteous, denigrating everyone else and doing it in the name of God, you'll see Jesus get upset, righteously so. Mm -hmm. But anyway, as he's going through Matthew 23, he's laying down these, woe unto you, woe unto you, you're hypocrites, you're vipers, you're all these things. I mean, he just lays down into these religious leaders. But one of the things he says is he's coming to the end of that, uh, end of the woes, as he tells the Pharisees, you will be held responsible for the blood of righteous Abel. Matthew, and it's Matthew 23, verse 35. Now think about that. He's looking at Pharisees and he is saying, you are going to be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets and the blood of righteous Abel. And he is so lumping them in with Cain. So when we think of Cain, we think of this this horrible murderer. He must be a pagan. He must be, you know, outside the church and jesus is saying no the most religious are cain Mm -hmm. and they're exactly what we've talked about they're the ones who say look how hard i work look how good i am look i I deserve this and when god you know here's jesus in the flesh telling the pharisees that tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into the kingdom ahead of these self-righteous punks you know and they're like, oh, how dare you say that? Do you know who we are? We work so hard. Look at our look at our robes and look at our prayers and look at how we behave and how we keep all the little details of the law. But here's the deal. Their heart, nowhere near the Lord. Yeah. 
It's all about, look what I do, God, you owe me. Yeah. And the story is absolutely a story about faith and works. It's self. Cain's problem is he is self-righteous. Mm-hmm. It's not God. I'm bringing to you this, you know, plants. Like what? What are these to you? Like they they don't they don't even come close to what you're worth worthy of. But I love you, and here's the best I have to offer. Like what God wants out of Cain is not his stupid plants. It's not his dumb fruit. It's Cain. I want your heart. Right. Abel gives that. Yeah. And God is pleased. He wants our hearts yeah. is the idea. I think there's a sense in which self-righteousness, too, is is linked inextricably to this inability to care about your brother. Mm-hmm. Because the self-righteous person is saying, I am who I am because of what I've done for myself. And if you were worth anything, you would do this for yourself also. I don't need to come give you a hand up. I don't need to help you or care about you in any way because look at me. I've made this of myself, and you could do the same if you just worked hard enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do think that there's, there's a sense in which when when I hear people who become very callous toward those who are genuinely uh, you know, in need and those who genuinely are, are uh, in a lesser position or who are suffering – I almost hear I hear that sense of self righteousness of look you know I've hey look no one helped me I've done this myself and I'm like mm-hmm. that's not the point <laughs> the point is that God is telling you you are your brother's keeper your brother is in need so help your brother mm-hmm. don't worry about what your brother could have should have would have done that's between him and God you just help your brother um, and 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 admittedly there are limits to everything I'm not saying that you help them to your own detriment or to yeah I mean. It, you got to have some context here. Yeah, and there, but there's a heart behind it. Like, right. if you're genuinely, if you're genuinely a Christian, you should be stunned that God wants you. Yes, because you know yourself. You know that you fall so far short of who He is, and yet He loves you to the point where He would give His Son on a cross. When you stop and think that the God of the universe, the infinitely righteous, holy, amazing God, looks at you and says, "You're worth my Son on a cross," that should blow your mind. And if God would condescend so far that He would make the deal to give His own life. For me, now, I should be so overwhelmed by the grace and mercy that's shown to me that I can't help but have that same attitude toward those that I see as more disadvantaged than myself. You know, there's there's a, a great theologian, Bruce Waltke, uh, and his definition when I took his class on Proverbs, he's like one of the most brilliant scholars in the world when it comes to wisdom literature, and he said, you know, here's the definition of righteousness. Is it somebody who's willing to disadvantage themselves for the sake of advantaging others? Mm. And that's the go- I mean, that's the gospel. That's, what Jesus, that's did. what Jesus did. Yeah. And so if you're somebody who says, well, I earned it and so should they, and I'm not going to, to help them or disadvantage myself, then you don't understand what you've been given. Right. The breath that's in your lungs does not belong to you. The righteousness that you claim in Christ is a total gift. Everything that you place your hope in, if you understand the gospel, is entirely by God's grace and his goodness and his kindness. And what he does then is say to you, go and do likewise. I want you to love others the way that I have loved you. And if if you think that translates to mean I'm better than you, and therefore you should do this on your own. Can you imagine God saying that to you? Gulp. <laughs> you know, that's not the way yeah. Jesus has loved you. 
Jesus has loved you at great personal cost. And right. so, and he was his brother's keeper, by the way. Yes. And to answer the question of why, well, look, what you were just saying, if I have that correct attitude toward myself, which is I am amazed and stunned that God would, would you know, give his son for me. And I recognize that, that that's what gives me worth. What gives me worth is not that I, what I've done or who I am. It's the fact that God has that God has chosen me, that God would be willing to sacrifice himself for me. Then I also have to look at you, Sam, and say, and God sacrificed himself for Sam also. And so my attitude toward these to, – to my brother – whom God has also sacrificed himself for, should be to recognize what infinite value and worth they have also because God has done the same for them that he's done for me. There aren't any Mm -hmm. levels of value in the Christian church or the Christian life. There may be different skills and people that occupy different places and God uses our gifts differently and that's fine. But when it comes down to worth, the person who's up on stage is worth no more than the person sitting in the back row before God. We're all, our worth is all equal in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so what this does, like you can fall off the edge of the, you know, the, the side of the coin in two different directions. Right. You know, in the church, you'll have a lot of people and people have bad experiences in the church and they'll say, you know, I came across this person and they were so self-righteous and narcissistic. They've missed the gospel. And then on the other side, you know, I, I was coming across uh, somebody who was talking to me about this just this week where they say, you know, Christianity makes me feel like it's wrong to love myself, you know, that I'm so bad or I'm so – and it's like, no, you've missed the gospel yeah. too. You you can't fall off either side of those coins. Christianity is the only worldview I can think of that, one, gives you more self-love and enhances your self-image beyond anything this world could possibly do. You know, you, when, when you consider your price tag, the God of the universe set your price tag at his son on a cross. Right. What more value could you possibly ask for? You can't. Yeah. So, so the level of love, and by the way, that makes it so that your self-love is not conditional upon your performance. It's not conditional upon your circumstances. It's entirely determined outside yourself. It's a gift of God, and therefore you're unbelievably precious. Do you, you don't even get how precious you are. You can't Understand the infinite love of God that has been set upon you. You're more precious than you can possibly know. And on the other side of that, you have to come to realize that I'm no better than anyone else. And so that idea of narcissism or self-righteousness, Christians should have none of that because none of our righteousness is from us. Right. You know, and so so it walks this – you don't get tyrants – who understand and legitimately grasp the gospel right. because they should always recognize every bit of my righteousness is by the grace of God. None of it. I am, I'm no better than anyone. But at the same time, you can't let that say, well, I'm no better than anyone, so I'm garbage. No. Right. <laughs> yeah. You bear the price tag of the Son of God that you could not possibly be more valuable. Right. And so it's, it brings together self-love and humility. In a unique way, because yeah. if you if somebody says, you know, I feel guilty for loving myself, God loved us, God gave himself for us, and that establishes this infinite value and worth that we have, it should be more constant because it's not based on, on what we do. I remember this, – this may need to get chopped out, but <laughs> – I, I always like it when you preface things that way. <laughs> this may need to come out, but – 
But there was a there was a book written by Bernard of Clairvaux who was around the Middle Ages, and it's the book is called On Loving God. And in that book, he talks about what he calls the ladder of love. And there's four rungs that he puts on this ladder. So you're growing in your understanding of love is the idea. The higher you go, and you know, I'm well. We can debate whether or not this is truly biblical, but I thought it was profound. He says, you know, the first rung is when you love yourself for your own sake. And that's like every human, you know, like we eat because we don't want to die. We'll we'll take care of ourselves. We'll move out of the way of a train because we don't want our body to get crushed, you know. So we love ourselves for our own sake. You know, that's the Stuart Smalley, doggone it, people like me. <laughs> you <Yes. know? laughs> Then the next one is we love God for our own sake. And that the idea behind that is, you know, I love God for what he can provide me. He's fire insurance. You know, he's going to get me out of the the fate of hell and I get to go to heaven and right. you know there'll be nice golden streets and I'll get to see my loved ones. So I love him for what he can do for me. And then the third one he puts he says the third rung is loving God for his own sake. And very few Christians ever reach this high of a rung. And that's when you love God. It's almost like a, when you when you're a parent and you give your kid a Christmas gift, you enjoy watching them smile. Like you just love watching them enjoy it. And so right. this rung is like, man, we give this to God because we delight in the fact that God smiles over this, that he rejoices in it. And so mm-hmm. we're concerned with how you know we love God and we want him to enjoy that love. Mm. And it's kind of – I when I first read that, I thought, well, hold on a minute. That should be the highest form of love. But he puts the very highest form of love – at loving yourself for God's sake. And almost you have to do some mental gymnastics to even figure out what that what that means. And and where he goes with this in the book is if you understood the heart of God and how wildly he loves you, you would love him, you would love yourself because it makes him happy. And that's mm. kind of like, whoa. Yeah. And and the way that I used to explain this when I was a teacher and I would talk to my middle school students or high school students is, is this way. I said, if I'm walking down Federal Highway and a student is walking the other way and they come ac- across me and my wife and they spit in my face, I'm going to be really upset, right? Now, let's redo that scene and he's walking down Federal Highway and he comes across me and my wife and spits and it's in my wife's face. Which of those two, as a husband, which of those two would you be more infuriated by, Mark? I would tra- <laughs> I would trample him if he spit on my wife, yes. Yeah. So we've seen that that's the very heart of God. Mm-hmm. You know, he would take the abuse to give his wife shelter. He would do all these things to provide us the amazing blessings that we have in the gospel. Why? Because God accounts you worth his own suffering. And so now reverse that. That means that, like, God so delights when we love one another. Mm-hmm. He so delights when, when we take care of each other, when we're not cruel to one another. Because remember, when you're spitting in some other human being's face, you're spitting in the face of somebody that God deems valuable enough to die for. Mm-hmm. And if we had that kind of understanding of how much it means to God that we love ourselves and love one another – Clairvaux says that is the highest form of love, loving yourself for the sake of God. Hmm. Well, I'm going to be bold and try to push ahead here and see if we can actually get <laughs> down through the Mark on Cain. Which, so, by the way, yes. not just to push that a little longer. <laughs> <laughs> 
in the story of, and this is no accident, by the way. You you find this again and again. But tell me if anything comes to mind in this story. You have an older brother who feels entitled to the blessing, and a younger brother who didn't quite measure up. Like Abel didn't work as hard, and Cain, the older brother, is furious when the father gives the blessing to the younger brother. Does that yeah. sound familiar? I mean, Jacob, the, Jacob the, and Esau. Yeah, it's Jacob and Esau. It's also the story of the prodigal son. Sure, that comes right. straight out of the mouth of Jesus. Here you have the older brother who does all the right stuff, who worked hard, who always, you know, seemed to obey, and the younger brother, which Jesus makes way worse than Abel, right? Intentionally, way worse than Abel, who runs and squanders the father's blessings and everything else. He lives a a, a crazy life with prostitutes and everything else, and he comes home, and God, in the story of the prodigal son, so Jesus makes it even more scandalous than Cain and Abel, God gives the blessing to the repentant younger brother who lived a scandalous life, right? Mm-hmm. And the older brother in that story is furious, just like Cain, right? He goes outside and he's I don't want nothing to do with this because I earned it and it should be about me. And what does Jesus put into the mouth of the father? He says, look, like your younger brother was dead and now he's alive. Like we should be rejoicing in in this. And so the the idea is the Pharisees are Cain. Mm-hmm. They're the older brother, the ones who feel that they're entitled. And even that parable, very, very clear, younger brother, older brother, the older brother earns it, the younger brother doesn't, but God gives grace to the one who didn't earn it, Yeah, you know, by grace. Yeah, and the prodigal son is actually a better even than Esau and Jacob, because in Esau and Jacob, Jacob got it by deception, and in the prodigal son, it was by the father's choice. Mm-hmm. The father chose to give the blessing to the younger brother. I do, at the end of that story, though, what he says to the older brother is somehow comforting to me, because I see myself sometimes in that older brother position sure. in that story. I'm like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> I'm here plugging away, and he and the father comes to the older brother and says, look, you know, you've been with me always, and all that I have is yours. But your younger brother was dead, and he's alive again. Um, and so there's a there's a consolation there to the older brother. You know, the father speaks kindly to him also. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I feel like God's speaking to me there. It's like, you know, just get some perspective. But you also, and what you were talking about with the illustration of, you know, walking down the highway with your wife and the student spits on you or he spits on your wife. I also I think of it also in terms of, you know, I would almost rather that you do something – well, not almost rather. I would rather that you do something nice for my wife Mm -hmm. or for one of my children than for me. Totally. I'm much – if you say nice things to me about my children or about my wife, that's better than you saying nice things to me about me. If you do something nice for them, that's better than doing something nice for me. In case you're wondering, I would rather see them do well, be praised, get well, get ahead – then see myself because I love my wife and I love my children to that extent. And I think that that's also here what, you know, the father is saying to the older brother, which is if you had this kind of love for your brother, you would be thrilled when yeah. this, they received this mercy. So, yeah. And what does Jesus say in, in Matthew 25? This is just what you're saying. He says, when you see the least of these, whether they're they're naked or in prison or hungry or whatever, whatever you do for the least of these, what? You you do for me. Jesus so relates to those that are on the out that what you do for them, what you do for your brother, the least of these, you do for him. 
It's it's what you're saying. Like I, I remember preaching a sermon one time, and and it was you know suppose I was in Haiti because this had just happened in Haiti, um, where I'm out of range of satellite phones and everything else, or out of range of normal cell phones. But imagine my house burned down, and my mm. my wife lost all the clothes, lost all of her shelter, lost all of her food, lost all of the medication for the kids, and they are literally homeless in an instant, and they are out in the streets without medication, clothing, whatever. Now, if if I was a week away from them and I flew home and I found out that my church community got them clothes, put them up in a house, gave them food, comforted them, got them counseling, got them the medications they needed, man, I would be so grateful. It would, mm-hmm. it would be like greater than if you had done it for me. But if I came back from that trip and I found my wife and my kids – you know, with ashes all over them, still naked, with no food, no clothing, no shelter, no medication, no nothing, and everybody had just neglected them, I would be furious right. with my church community. Yeah. And, like, I think there's some part of God's heart when he says, you know, what you do for the least of these, you do for me, and what you don't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. I, he relates there. It's pretty pretty amazing yeah. how much he loves us. And he's like, when did we do this for you? We didn't even see that we were doing this for you. And that's when he says, you've done it to the least of me. It's a great story. Yeah. Um, sometimes I, I wonder whether we spend so much time looking for God. Like, like, oh, if Jesus was here, of course we'd take him in and help him. Of course we would do that for you, Lord. We would do anything for you, Lord. Just let us know when you're going to be in town. Yeah. You know, and we'll put yeah. out, we'll kill the fatted calf and we'll have the big party for you, Lord. And just, you know, that'll be great. No, it's going to be great. Just, I'll, Jesus, I'll do anything you want for you. Just let yeah. me know when you're going to be here. And Jesus is like, I'm already here. Mm-hmm. You know, think how, I mean, the fact that he would relate and say, what you do for them, you do for me, it just shows how intimately concerned he is yes. for each of us. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Yeah. When he says that you are cursed from the ground, like he said, like God says that to to, to uh, Cain, he goes, uh-huh. "You are cursed from the ground." We we kind of talked about in chapter three when Adam was having God's consequences or judgment pronounced on him, or the consequences explained to him. He's like, "Cursed is the ground because of you." And we kind of talked about the fact that he didn't curse Adam. But he said that there's going to be, you know, that he cursed this ground, the, the thing that Adam needed to work with, the thing that was going to matter most to him, this ability to provide and to grow food and these things are going to be very difficult now that there was this curse mm-hmm. on the ground. But now it's like, okay, the blood is on the ground, the brother's blood is on the ground, and God says, and now you are cursed from the ground, which makes it sound like the the obviously the curse is coming like i guess from the brother's blood or it's the cause of it mm-hmm. but this curse is definitely coming back on Cain at that point what curse is coming back on Cain so so this is actually so it says you know Abel's blood goes down into the ground which which immediately we should go okay God is provoked by this the shedding of blood it, right. this is it's it set it apart like. in a right. special category right right but anyway when this when this blood goes down into the ground Cain is specifically I don't think this is for the the whole world here but Cain specifically is done with the ground it's going to rebel especially against him, right? You, you know, it will no longer yield to you its strength. Um, and so the ground is even more rebellious against Cain. And the New Testament's going to pick this up because, you know, the idea that you get here is that when Abel's blood goes down into the ground, it calls out for vengeance and brings a cursing and a judgment mm-hmm. upon Cain. 
And in the book of Hebrews, gosh, this is just so rich. In the book of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 23, Jesus, or, or the author of Hebrews, probably Paul, I think it's Paul, we think it's Paul, right. but he comes and says this, you have come to God, the judge of all men, right? So it's already like the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and listen to this, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mm -hmm. And so right here, like what we're to understand is way back then when Abel's blood was spilled into the ground, it called out for vengeance and justice, right? And sure enough, that fell upon Cain. You know, he was he was going to bear that justice. But Jesus on the cross is going to sprinkle blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cry out for vengeance. It doesn't cry out for justice. Jesus paid the justice, and now his blood cries out mercy. And so, you know, in a sense, we are all Cain and the story of the gospel. We are the ones who killed the righteous son of God. Mm. We are the ones who put Jesus to death. We are the ones who caused his blood to be shed because of our sin. And his blood comes down and doesn't call upon our cursing. It calls upon our salvation. Mm. His blood is so much better than Abel's. His blood is the end of the curse. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. We'll let that stand as our last word from uh, this part of Genesis chapter 4. We didn't have time to get through all of it, but we will pick back up there next week with Cain and and sort of the the spiral that he goes into after that. But we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us today, that it's been profitable to you. We do invite you to correspond with Samurai. If you have questions or comments or things that you want to bring up or talk about, um, you can send us email. The email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O vistachurch.com where you can also find all of the back episodes of Out of Water by going to our website at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water as well as finding us on Apple Podcasts Google Play and of course Spotify. We'll be back next week with more from Genesis chapter 4 and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.